we're starting off a brand new series here, and we'll be looking at the book of Isaiah. So we're going to have this awesome journey for the next few weeks. I want to invite you to open up to Isaiah chapter 66 as we take a look at the Word of God. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, says God. Lord, in this time and in this sacred space, we give you dominion again. May your Holy Spirit fall afresh on us, transform us, change us, not just individually and personally, but communally together. Lead us in our time. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Let all God's people say. So if we're going to be honest with the text, we have to consider the fact that this oration was happening to a specific community. We are not the primary audience for Isaiah. It's not us. We're secondary, maybe to tertiary, but we're not that primary audience. And too often, we have confused ourselves to be the primary audience, thus missing out on the context of what God is trying to convey to his people. So, it is important to recognize we are not primary audience. Last week, I was in Glendale. That's where our, our conference is, in Glendale. And I stopped into a store to pick up some water. The grocery store was fairly close, so I swooped in, and as I swooped in, I started walking around the store as I usually do. And for some reason, I found myself coming down the wine and beer aisle. Somebody say amen. It was a rough week. No, <laughs> I'm joking for those of you watching. I'm in the beer and wine aisle, and I'm like looking down there. But as a good Adventist does, right, anytime we get into proximity of something that is non-Adventist, we get all awkward and weird. We don't know how to deal with it. We feel guilty. We haven't even done anything. We just start feeling guilty for no reason, right? You're thinking of a reason, and excuse why you're, you're there so that when somebody sees you next to that pepperoni pizza, you're like, that's not mine. That's that heathen's over there, not mine. And so I'm down this, I'm, I, I pull up into the wine and beer aisle, I'm looking down, and I see a slender, uh, taller gentleman who seemed like he was wearing nice clothes, and he looked like he had that Adventist guilt look on his face too. So we just kind of ignored each other. And we're walking past each other, and he, he passes me, and as he passes me, and just out of my periphery, he yells out, whoa! I haven't heard from you in so long. I can't believe this. How are you doing? And so the person I am, I turn around and I throw my arms out because I'm a hugger. I said, no, I can't believe this. I haven't seen you in a long time. And I'm great. How are you? Because as an Adventist pastor, I hate to admit that I don't know your name. Many of you here, I will never know your name. I'm sorry. Don't test me. I'll fail. And I turn around, I said, hey, man. And so I'm coming in for this huge hug, and I realize he had AirPods in his ears. <laughs> and he's holding a conversation with someone on the AirPods. But it's too late. <laughs> I'm 90% in. I'm coming all the way. I can't stop. The momentum is moving me. 
when major mass moves, it's hard to stop. <laughs> so I just, I just hugged this random stranger in the store. <laughs> Cuddled him nicely in my arms. Held him long enough for him to start like tapping me back. He was <laughs> very confused. <laughs> then I left the store never to return there again. <laughs> right. This all happened because I thought I was primary audience. When I heard him speaking, I immediately believed he was speaking to me. And so I turned to accept and to respond to that, uh, to, to that dialogue, not realizing that I'm not the primary audience. The primary audience is the individual he's talking to. And I don't know what that individual on the phone is going through. Maybe, maybe uh, they haven't talked in a long time because they fell out of uh, friendship. Maybe it's his sister who's struggling with some kind of disease or illness. Maybe there's, there's some kind of reconciliation that is happening and I totally bulldozered the moment for the guy. I could hear in the little earbuds, what, 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 what's going on, what's going on? <laughs> Awkward. I apologize now, I'm an awkward person. So often when we read scripture, we read as first primary audience. And when we do that, we miss out on the treasures that lie within the context of why God says what he says, of why God communicates the way he communicates. And so we want to look at this particular group of people and what is happening while God is speaking in Isaiah 66. He's talking to a community whose character of right worship was central to their identity. Correct and good sacrifices was who they were. They had been pillaged and oppressed and enslaved by Egyptians, Syrians, Babylonians. They'd been in exile. They'd been out of exile. They'd been all over the place. And the only thing they had was their worship. So it was very important to them. They picked up ideas from different cultures along the way, and they would pick up a certain uh, uh, normatives that was a part of a different tribe, and they would take it with them. The only uniqueness they had was this sense of worship. They cared deeply about temple worship and sacrifices. This was who they were. And so God reminds them, that the throne room is not the earth, but it is in the place where God is. He has the throne room and the earth is the footstool. Because they were so wrapped up in their temple worship and in their sacrifices, they had let go of the mandates given to them by God. They had let go of these ethical mandates that God wanted them to do. So instead of taking care of the neighbor, instead of taking care of the resident alien and the orphans and the widows, they thought it was enough to just have right worship. They believed that their sacrifices was going to be the thing that saves them. And so God says, you, you're not the throne room. You are the footstool. The mandate for goodness comes from above, not from down to up. And so these people were reminded that their unique worship, that their sacrifices, that your rituals and their practices and their artifacts was not enough to save them, but that they had to be available to God's mandate of good ethical living 
that blesses and brings rightness to the world around them. I thought it was pretty interesting because as an Adventist, I think we can relate pretty good. We are a people who have a unique worship, and that's our identity. Our identity is wrapped up in our uniqueness, right? Uh, we worship on a different day from everyone else. This is our day of worship. Um, if you're not an Adventist and this is your first time, hey, welcome. This is like Sunday worship, except it's not. <laughs> it's on Sabbath because this is our day. We, we have certain foods that we love. We've, we've enshrined certain foods. How many of you are going to have a haystack sooner or later? Yes, you good Adventists. This is what we do. And so we begin to create a litmus test for salvation according to these unique characteristics of our denomination and our church. And we begin to forget that we don't get the right to judge who gets to heaven. That is God's job. The church doesn't have the authority to say you make it to heaven and you don't. Only God has the authority to suggest those kinds of things. Somebody say amen. Oh, we get carried away as Adventists. Can I get an amen for that? Man, let's be honest. We get a little carried away with each other, right? And, and, and you know, we, we are so wrapped in our, up in our, in our particular identity that we may not necessarily believe something, but when we're together, we all do that thing, Right? You know what I mean, pepperoni eaters. Somebody say amen. <laughs> you be eating that pepperoni, somebody comes in that's having it, you just flick that pepperoni off your piece. <laughs> Did I just see you throw pepperoni? Nope, that was vegaroni. <laughs> oh, we love our stripples. Look at you, you're all salivating now. Mm -hmm. We don't even call it faking, we call it stripple. That doesn't really make no sense. And we begin to watch each other carefully as a litmus test whether we are good Christians. And then when we decide that you're a good Christian, you then have the right to obtain salvation. According to Isaiah, we are the footstool. We don't get that right. The throne room belongs to God and all authority and supremacy belongs to him. So that if he so decides that someone is saved by the power of Jesus, we don't get to deny that. It is Christ and Christ alone. Walter Brueggemann points out this. He says this passage and its point was not to minimize the importance of earth, but it was meant to minimize the importance of the temple service, practices, artifacts, and rituals on earth. In other words, what he's saying is that the earth is important to God. This is God's dwelling place. But the church doesn't have the right to treat this earth the way the church wants to. It must treat this earth the way Jesus wants it to treat it. So there are things about us and our unique characteristics that sometimes get in our way for reaching the world because we are so good at building walls around ourselves to keep the outsiders out. We always talk about how, oh man, we want everybody to come to church, everybody except you. You should not come to our church. We need you to change. We need you to do this. And then once you're Adventist looking, you can come into our church. We weren't called to do that. And we certainly don't have the authority to do that. Hmm. Which means 
we should probably start looking at our church and our characteristics and start doing some Marie Kondo to it. You all know who Marie Kondo is? May I tell you the story of Marie Kondo? So about a month ago, I come home and my wife is on Netflix watching Marie Kondo. And she's got one single teardrop coming down her face. And she says, this is, this is brilliant. She's telling us that we need to be more simple. I've been saying that our whole marriage. <laughs> Marie Kondo has a cool accent and now she gets the credit for this? She's like, yeah, she's, she's oh, I, can't, I can't hold it together. So what Marie, I come to the screen and Marie Kondo is holding some clothes and she's talking to the article of clothing. Thank you for your time. Our experience has been meaningful. I now must let you go. My wife, that's brilliant. No, it's not. I've been saying that. I come back two days later to the home. I come into our bedroom and everything is out of the closet. My wife is looking at a pair of her pants. It's right in the buttocks. Eh? Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your experience. I must now say goodbye to you. Say goodbye already. And she shoves it in a bag. She's so excited. She goes wild and just starts cleaning everything. She starts Marie Kondoing my stuff. And I'm like, no, don't do, don't do that. I've got three articles of closing. You Marie Kondo, I'm gonna be naked. Don't, don't. I thought how interesting that was, right? And I just began to think about how we as a church need to begin to Marie Kondo ourselves. We need to grab onto some of the things that we've held on so dearly and say, thank you for the time that we've shared. Thank you for the experiences we have. Thank you for leading my parents and my grandparents and the generation before me. And now I must put you down because I need an open space for God's newness into my church. It is now time. And that is difficult for us because if we're really honest with each other, we love old things. Somebody say amen. You know, man, you got a pair of shoes you got to throw away because your toe is touching the ground. <laughs> throw it away. Ladies, listen, you don't need four seasons of types of clothes, right? This is for when I lose weight. This is for when I'm, this is for... Honey, I don't even know if, no, I won't say it, honey. Just whatever you want to do here, honey. <laughs> this is true for our church. There are things that we believe if we let this thing go, somehow our identity is going to all fall apart. If we stop doing this thing, all of a sudden we're not going to be unique. Our uniqueness is found in Jesus. And in order to receive his newness, we must make space in our church's closets. Amen. Maybe there are a few Marie Kondo things we need to do. So we see a contrast between earth and heaven. This is made to remind the residents of earth that God is greater and above their notions and their ideas, that God's vastness cannot be contained within a temple or a building or a community, that God is beyond that. God is other, greater than what we can imagine. 
And he calls us to this work of tuning in to where he's at in this world. We couldn't quite understand that. And the problem is we have a hard time understanding things because we think we got the truth. We call ourselves the people of the truth. But the people of the truth really means that we are people who love to explore, discover, play, and rediscover God's truths in this world. It does not mean that we obtain and possess objective truth completely. That belongs to Jesus. We get the opportunity to come along, to recognize that we are not the throne room, but that we are the footstool, and that it's okay to be that space, to continually be learning and exploring and playing and discovering. And when we discover something beautiful and wonderful, we're willing to let something else go and put it away and pack it and thank it for its time so that we could get this far, so that we can start a new chapter. We are a footstool. Isaiah writes in such a way to remind the temple people that they are the footstool and not the throne room. This is a great comparison because it deflates the egos of a community to realize they are the bottom and not the top. So I drive a, a Toyota Prius. Toyota Prius driver, say amen. Oh, yes, not very many of you. Oh. I drive a 2007 Toyota Prius with almost 300,000 miles. I inherited it from my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, with zero miles, and I promised myself at that time I would never drive a Prius, because no sensible man in 2007 was driving Prius. She had a little Mickey Mouse uh, antenna with the whole license plate of the princesses, and I said, I will never drive your car. But as is with my car, it's always out of gas. That's because of my DNA. I can't help that. It's built in me to not have gas in my car. I borrowed her car one time, couldn't stop driving it. I love the Prius. I drove it here today. It was putting all the way here. My cousin calls me a couple months ago. He says, hey, why don't you come up to my house? I got something I want to show you. Come on over. Drove up in the Prius, and the Prius just went ahead and kept going and chugging. And we made it all the way to his home. And then he opens the garage, and then he pushes a button. And a Tesla begins to come out. Nobody's driving this thing. It just comes out. What kind of black magic is that? I don't know. <laughs> this is of Satan. <laughs> this thing just starts back with, hey, 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 hey. He's like, don't worry. That's what it does. Let's go for a drive. Mm, I don't know. I can't. I, I don't want to hate myself all the way home. This is going to be bad. I don't. Come on. We get in this thing, and it's driving, and it drives itself. It's talking to me. It wants to hug me while I'm in the car. What? We get back. I get back into my Prius. Sure enough, I hate myself. Because <laughs> I realize I was sitting in a footstool and I was just in the throne room. I was deflated. This, this piece of scripture reminds the temple and the church to be deflated, that they are not the all ends to be all, that that is Jesus. And if we want to get it right, we don't get to control the narrative. We don't get to uh, have power over the narrative. We get to be a part of the narrative that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so this God comes down to earth because we've got issues with ourself. We've got issues with, with control and possession. We like having truth. We like having a culture and lifestyle that feels more right than anyone else's. We are sectarian in nature. So it is a very real temptation for us to prioritize church lifestyle above God's ethical mandates. Robert Mulholland puts it this way in his book, An Invitation to a Journey. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. And too often the church has a difficulty letting God drive the church. Jesus comes down into flesh the incarnate word of the Lord walks here, and he is very indifferent to the religio-centric customs of the time. Jesus is out feeding the hungry. Jesus is out healing the sick. Jesus is out and about touching the unclean and eating with the sinners, all the while the church having a difficulty with what Jesus is doing. Jesus is our goal, and he calls us forward. We as a church at this time more than ever need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. At this time in history, it is dire important because there are struggles and debates, there's ideological schools fighting, there are political issues going on, and everyone is tearing it one way and this other way. And I just want to say, in the midst of all this, we've got to keep our eyes on Christ. We've got to see where he's working and where he's willing to work. And then we've got to dive in there and be a part of that movement. We've got to be the ones willing to be uncomfortable so that God can reach the masses. Jesus becomes carnate. Matthew 6, he teaches his peoples how to pray. In, verse, uh, in chapter 6, he, in part of that prayer, he says... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that statement, he brings concrete value to the material world that we live in. So that our church recognizes it is not saved by our worship service. It is saved by God's grace towards us creating service to the world creating goodness and reconciliation to those around us, to look after people, to watch after our orphans, to look after our widows, to, to take care of our alien residents, to, to, to be the kind of place that cares about the mandates of Jesus. And so it brings a real importance to the here and now. Church, there is an importance of the here and now. We as a church cannot just settle for being about our own worship business. We must be about the work of loving this world well. And the only way we can do that, where it may get a little uncomfortable, is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Where is Jesus? And where Jesus is, we too should be. Um, I've, got, I've got a, I'm a dad. Very proud to be a dad. Yes. Proud dads, say amen. Be proud of that, dads. I've got two kids. I've got a four-year-old uh, son, and I've got a six-year-old daughter. I want to talk about my daughter a little bit today. 
Um, she's, uh, she's about four, four foot four. She's six years old. Uh, and she's in kindergarten. She just started kindergarten. Now listen, uh, I wish that somebody would write a book about kindergarten. They write books about like labor and childbirth, and they write books about teenagers, and then they write books about young adults um, trying to get them out of your house, right? But they don't write books about like that first year of kindergarten and like how a parent should deal with this situation. Because my daughter goes into kindergarten and I'm not ready for this transition. She's like changing in all kinds of ways. She's doing things that I, I was not ready for. Here's an for instance. Her first week in school, she comes home to me at the end of the week and she says this. Dad, I've got news for you. I said, awesome. Is it, did you, is it you love school? No. Oh. Okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, is it you, you did well? No. Okay. Is it you got new friends? She's like, uh, no. Oh. Okay. Well, what is it? She said, first week. She's still five. She says to me, I like a boy. <laughs> it's been one week. Lord, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> what? And I'm outside like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm totally ready to deal with this right now. She's like, yeah, I really like him. Do you really like him? She said, I wrote him a letter. You don't even know how to spell yet. <laughs> what? She said, yeah, I wrote him a little letter and it says, I like you. Okay, well, how did you start liking him? Because he was, you know, you guys were sharing crayons in class. No, he, he's not in my class. What? Yeah, he's in second grade. <laughs> what kind of old man cradle robbing? Second, what? She's like, yeah. I'm like, no. I was like, oh, I need to come to your school. Who is it? Because I'm not beneath punching somebody, right? <laughs> now, listen, I'm just joking. I would never punch a second grader. <laughs> I don't want any of you leaving this place like, that pastor really was. He's going to punch somebody. No, I'm not going to punch somebody. I might punch somebody. No, I won't. I won't. And I look at her cousin because her cousin's sitting next to her. He's in second grade, right? He's like, like six foot nine. I'm like, Jaden, yeah. <laughs> Jaden, your one job in this world of your existence is to make sure she doesn't get a boyfriend. She's been in school for like five days. What is going on? Jaden's like, uh, I don't know. I said, Jaden, what in the world? How could this happen? Adventist education has failed me completely. <laughs> and then I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start homeschooling. And I was like, no, don't do that because you're not smart enough to teach her. Like... She's going to grow up and just know Bible verses, and that's horrible, you know. She's going to be wearing combat boots and sweats all day long. I said, hey, come on, Jaden. So Jaden comes back to me later the, the, the next week, the, the beginning of the week. He says, don't worry, uncle. I took care of it. <laughs> really, Jaden? Because <laughs> the kid is half the size of my daughter. So he's a quarter of the size of my nephew. And he says, yeah, I took care of it. I said, what'd you do? He says, I told him, I said, you better not like her, my cousin. I said, whoa, all right, Jaden, all right. And then he said, yeah. 
And then, and then, Jaden, and then I told him, because if you like her, ooh. I said, oh, I like this. What, what? He goes, ooh. I told him, if you like her, her dad's going to come find you. No, no. <laughs> Jaden, you're going to take me to prison. Come on, I want to be. I'm the pastor's school. I love the boy. Come on. You know, and now I see him like he's running away. I'm like, no, don't run away. I love you. It's okay. Just don't like my daughter. And I realized at this time that my daughter, this is like the realization I'm getting. My daughter is going to be exposed to the world around her. She's going to explore and grow, and she's going to do some awesome things, and she's going to make some mistakes along the way. And she's going to love well, and she's going to fail well. And, and all through those experiences, if I want her to, have, to live out the potential of who she is, I've got to stay close to her. And I've got to love her through these moments. And I've got to be consistent with her even when she's not consistent with herself. And when she's feeling like a failure, I've got to make sure that I inject her with, with goodness and encouragement and inspiration. And this is what I need to do for my daughter to become the holy, loving, beautiful person that God has in store for her life. And then I begin to think that if I want the church to be this holy, beautiful, filling its complete potential of who it should be, it needs to stay close to Jesus. Because there are moments in our church where we're inconsistent and we fail. There are moments where we fail our young people. There is moments when we fail our women, especially our women who deserve to be pastors. There are, minute, there, there are moments when we fail uh, some of our other races and other people and some of our other classes and we're inconsistent. But if we stay close to Jesus, he will always be consistent in growing us with goodness and rightness and love. And as you leave this place today, maybe it's time to have discussions about we need to Marie Kondo a few things. Turn to somebody and say, hey, let's Marie Kondo. Maybe it's time for our church to hold that conversation. As you leave today, I want you to know that if we stay close to Jesus, that we will be the kind of church that loves well. May you leave today loving well.